we are continuing to look uh, as a church at uh, this important time in the history of God's people uh, called the exile. So uh, the, the Babylonian Empire invades God's people in Israel in the city of Jerusalem, and they take a bunch of people back to Babylon, which is very far away, to live kind of like political prisoners. They're, they're almost like refugees in this faraway country. They're there for decades. Uh, and it was an extremely difficult time. The Babylonian uh, culture was a, a strong one. It was a powerful one. Uh, and, and really, the values of Babylon were very different from the, the values of God's people. Uh, and so it was just an extremely challenging time. Like, how do you, how do you stay faithful living in a distant place uh, under all that pressure. Uh, But now, in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at something a little bit different about this. We've been looking at what happens when you leave that kind of hostile country and you come home again. Uh, So what happens when when the, the, the Jews were allowed to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem into a place where they wouldn't have this dominant Babylonian culture sort of breathing down their necks. So that's been the book of Ezra. And today we're going to look at, it's really all one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so this is, we'll call this part two. Um, it's on page 504. It's the book of Nehemiah. And so just a quick recap. By the, so by the time we get to the Nehemiah part of Ezra and Nehemiah, a lot has already happened. So it was a hundred years ago already. Uh, that the Jews first, that first wave of Jews went back to Jerusalem. And then last week we talked about what happened about 80 years after that when a second wave came. And we've just kind of been looking at what happens when these two waves come and try to sort of reestablish their home in Jerusalem. But now Nehemiah doesn't begin in Jerusalem. It actually begins back in captivity again. So it's the... It's the uh, capital of Persia. It's the city of Susa. Okay, And there's a group of Jews living in that city. They didn't go back with the first wave or the second wave. Um, but they're there in, in Susa. But just because they are in Susa doesn't mean they haven't heard the stories of the people who've gone back. So they've heard the stories about the great leader Zerubbabel, right? We talked about him a couple weeks ago. This godly, brave man who led this first wave back. And remember, he rebuilt the temple and he rebuilt the altar. And then this other guy, Ezra, you know, after Zerubbabel, this guy Ezra came and he he called God's people to follow God's law again. Uh, So they knew these stories. Of course, if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that those stories are a little more complicated uh, than all that. Uh, But from the perspective of the Jews all the way in Susa, which was also a long ways away, I imagine that when they heard the stories of, of Zerubbabel and Ezra, it sounded like everything was going great. That that God's promises to his people to get them out of exile, those promises are coming true. They could see that God had not abandoned His people. There were sacrifices in the temple again. There were people studying God's Word again. From a distance, it looked like God's people were restored. But then one day, this guy, Nehemiah, gets a visit from his cousin. 
so Nehemiah was a Jewish official in the court of the, the king of Persia. Uh, and one day his cousin comes to see him, and this cousin has just returned from Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is very excited about this, uh, and he wants to know all about how are things going in Jerusalem. And again, his assumption is probably that things are going great. But his cousin has some bad news. This is chapter 1, verse 3. And he says to Nehemiah, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. See the problem here. Uh, A city that doesn't have walls, there's really no city at all in the ancient world. It would be like a city today without roads or streetlights or sewers. Uh, It is a symbol that the city is a mess. And it's a symbol to, to Nehemiah that God's people have not restored the nation to anything like what it was before. They're not done with exile. And so, when Nehemiah hears this, it breaks his heart. Verse 4, he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's bubble has been burst. He no doubt believed that under the the leadership of great men like Zerubbabel and Ezra, Jerusalem was returning to its former glory. And now he's just found out that that is not the case at all. And so he arranges to go to Jerusalem himself. And his plan is he's going to finish what those guys started. So he gets to the city. And uh, in no time, he's got every family, every tribe getting to work. They're they're building these big doors that are going to go in the gates. Um, And he's arranging these work crews uh, to start rebuilding the walls. And, And as you read the book of Nehemiah, you get this sense, as you had with the other guys, that this is the leader we need. This is the guy. He gets it. Um, He's saying the right things. He's doing the right things. He's trusting God on every page. And when we see him at work throughout this book, our confidence just grows and grows. Like, this is a guy who knows how to get it done. Work crews are going around the clock. The progress is incredible. It's like nothing can stop this guy. And it's not that people didn't try. So there were these... There were these uh, governors in the nations around them. They were all provinces of Persia at the time, but basically other nations. Uh, Like this guy, Sanballat. Uh, He was the Samaritan governor. And this other guy, Tobiah. He was the Ammonite governor. And, uh, And of course, they didn't want Jerusalem rebuilt. That's a threat to them. And so they keep trying to stop Nehemiah. So in chapter 3, they, they mock the workers and they taunt them and they make fun of the Jews for trying to rebuild this pathetic city. And then in chapter 4, it's a more serious plot. They actually plan to invade Jerusalem while all the workers are just out on their scaffolding. And then in chapter 6, they even try to lure Nehemiah uh, into like this uh, assassination plot. But every time they try to stop Nehemiah, he just turns the tables on them. Uh, he, he foils their plans, he, he exposes their schemes, and our sense, it just gets growing and growing 
that Nehemiah is special. Like, whatever those other guys lacked, like, he's got it. Like, he is the man to finish this job. And so even with all the plotting and the scheming, they had the whole project done in like two months. And so by chapter 7, the wall is built, and Ezra shows up again, and the two of them, Nehemiah and Ezra, they lead like the most epic church service ever. It's, it's a week long. They spend the whole morning just reading God's law, and they offer these sacrifices, and, and they, they tell the stories about how God has been good to them. And then after they do that, they all together, the whole nation, recommits themselves to, to God and recommits themselves to the things God cares about. It's this epic chapter. And they promise they're going to take care of the temple and they're going to, they're going to make their offerings and they promise that they're going to take care of the poor and they're going to keep the Sabbath. And it, it's almost too good to be true. The city's rebuilt. The, the temple's refocused. The people are recommitted. Like Everything is awesome. Until we get to the last chapter. Chapter 13. And uh, chapter 13 is rough. The first thing that happens, um, the, the priest of God's temple had like rented out space in the temple to this guy Tobiah. You remember Tobiah? The Ammonite governor, the guy who plotted to kill Nehemiah the one who tried to stop the work of God's people, the high priest has rented out space in the temple to that guy. And so in chapter 13, Nehemiah's got to take care of that. But then just as soon as that's fixed, we learn that the priests haven't been getting paid. So they've been having to do all this farm work in addition to their temple work, and the temple work's not getting done. So in chapter 13... Nehemiah takes care of that problem. And then just as soon as that one's taken care of, we learn that all the Jews, they're all just working on the Sabbath. Like, no big deal. And so in chapter 13, Nehemiah has to take care of that problem. And then right after that gets taken care of, we learn that the foreign traders were camping out along the city wall in a way to try to get around Nehemiah's Sabbath crackdown. And so in chapter 13, Nehemiah's got to take care of that problem. And then right after that, we learn that a bunch of people were uh, marrying foreign wives again. If you were here last week, you heard why that was a problem. And the priests were encouraging it. And so in chapter 13, Nehemiah takes care of that problem. And then the book just ends. It's a bad ending. I mean, this book really did seem promising. Nehemiah is awesome. Everything's rocking and rolling. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all the way to chapter 12. And then we get that stupid chapter 13. And everything they worked for is falling apart. Zerubbabel, his big accomplishment, we were so excited about rebuilding the temple. It's a mess. Nobody in there even knows what they're doing. Uh, Ezra, his big accomplishment, right? Ending this intermarriage stuff. Chapter 13, it's just as bad as ever. 
Even Nehemiah, right? He led the people to recommit to keeping the Sabbath. Chapter 13, everybody's breaking the Sabbath. Why couldn't they just end the story in chapter 12? I mean, it seemed like the whole time these leaders were so great. They they embodied not the decadent and self-serving and godless values of Babylon. They loved God. They said the right things. They were humble and prayerful. I mean, what's not to like? You don't get better than that. But even they couldn't deliver. And by the end of chapter 13... And you have this weird moment where you realize that even Jerusalem looks like the kind of place where a faithful follower of God would really be kind of a threatened minority in a sea of Babylonian values. And we begin to get this feeling that just because you leave Babylon doesn't mean you're done with exile. So, you know, I I chose this theme uh, of exile for our fall preaching series on purpose. I don't know if you knew that. I knew the election would be taking place. And uh, that would be on everybody's mind every week when they came to church. And I knew that the election would take place near the end of the series. And I tried to think, like, how do we as Christians understand our place in this particular country at this particular time? And it really seemed like the best way to explain it was exile. That in really important ways, we are strangers in this land. That the values of our culture and our nation and our leaders are often in conflict with the values of the kingdom of God. But of course, like all exiles... That doesn't stop us from hoping that we can make this place like home again. It doesn't stop us from hoping that if we just got the right leader, we could get out of this mess. If we just got a leader who who embodies not like the decadent, self-serving, godless values of Babylon, but a leader who acts for justice and stands for truth, and who lives with integrity in their lives, and and who seeks the values of the kingdom of God in the public square. We hope for these transcendent, godly leaders. And then we end up with Donald Trump. You know, I really thought that exile would be the best way to explain our Christian place in this political season. But I have to confess something. Um, I'm still getting a little feedback, Nick. I don't know if there's something you can do about that. Um, I, I have to confess something. So I wanted to do this exile thing. Uh, but all this fall, and probably up until about 
2.30 on Wednesday morning. Um, I had the sense that this image of exile might be resonating more with the conservative members of our church than our more liberal ones. I had this sense that the changing values, especially around sexuality and family, made someone with Christian and conservative values about those things feel like a threatened minority. Fearful that our culture or government was just going to make it very hard to hold on to those beliefs. But then at the same time, all this fall, I have wondered if the more liberal folks in our church, I've wondered if this was resonating. You know, maybe the changes in views on sexuality and the reach of the government, that doesn't bother you. Maybe you thought, you know, what's Sean going on about? I mean, this country's great. This is progress. This is awesome. This is the arc of history. It is long, but it is bending toward justice. But I'm going to go out on a limb this morning. I think it's a very sturdy limb. It's not a very long limb. And I'm going to guess that the image of exile is working for just about everybody this week. I don't imagine you need much convincing that as people of the kingdom of God, we are strangers in this world. And if that wasn't obvious to you on Tuesday afternoon, I'll bet it was on Wednesday morning. I hope this exile series is starting to click. I I hope that we're seeing the importance of strengthening our colony. Remember when we talked about that? Our church, right? of teaching each other and the next generation the stories of God, the heart of God, what He cares about, of practicing with each other in intentional ways a Christian identity, whatever direction this world is going in. I think sometimes that will mean we stand out and seem odd for our view of sex or the scope of the government. But I think this week, probably the way our Christian witness and identity is going to stand out and seem odd in the next four years, will be more about our compassion for immigrants, our commitment to the most vulnerable, our resistance to making this nation into an idol. Because we are people of the kingdom of God. Which means, I think, that we should not look much to politicians and leaders to make that kingdom known. I think if the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are telling us anything, they are telling us that our best hope to end this exile is not another merely human leader. Ezra and Nehemiah show us pretty great human leadership that is completely ineffective to fix the real problem. So that in the end, I think Ezra and Nehemiah are really pointing beyond themselves to a better leader, to a true king, a totally different kind of king. They're pointing to Jesus. And I believe that until he returns again, we will always be exiles in this world. You know, sometimes our leaders here on earth, they're going to do things that are consistent with the kingdom of God. And that's great. 
Um, we should pray for that. We should hope for that. We should work for that. But the real witness to that kingdom of God belongs not really so much to them. It belongs to us. It belongs to exiles. It belongs to us this month at least as much as it did last month. We are called to live faithful kingdom lives in a world that pretends that Christ is not king. In a world that pretends that this world is all there is, that pretends that you're either with me or you're against me. Uh, You either agree with me completely or you hate me. You're either a Democrat or a Republican. You're either black or white. But exiles like us know that the kingdom of God is much bigger and much more beautiful than those false choices. We are strangers in a strange land. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so I think that that should be a caution about putting our hopes in the next leader. Because our temptation is to put our heads down, ride out the next four years, kill time while we wait for the next great leader who's going to fix this mess. My Democrat friends cannot wait to vote for the Elizabeth Warren Cory Booker ticket in 2020. But I think what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us is that even with the best leaders, Leaders who know God and know His kingdom intimately, even with the best leaders, they might get you an inspiring chapter 1, an encouraging chapter 2. You might see everything's great in chapter 3, even all the way to chapter 12, but it seems in this world there is always a chapter 13. Where even our best laid plans do not fix our predicament. We might get it looking good from a distance. I mean, the Jews in Susa, I mean, they thought Jerusalem had arrived. But upon closer examination, we're not really out of exile. We're not really in our true home until Christ is king of all of it. And that starts with every part of your life and every part of mine. Some of us have some serious anger issues this week. Some of us have real pride issues. Is Christ the king of the way that you're talking about people in the other party? And what about the next four years? Is Christ the king of those? And I've heard a number of people comment this week that Christ is still on His throne. That's true. That's very good news. But if Christ is on His throne, will we live as though He is King? Will we take risks for the kingdom of God, knowing that the power is in His kingdom and not in the kingdoms of this world? Will we serve sacrificially? Will we love deeply? Will we hold to our Christian identity even if it means for some issues we align with this party and with some issues we align with that party and with some issues we have no party?
Will we hold to our Christian identity even if it means the world hates us? Or misunderstands us? Will we hold to our Christian identity even if it costs us everything? You know Trump's not leading the way on this. And if you're looking down the road, Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Paul Ryan, they're not going to lead the way on this either. This is the task of exiles. To live as engaged and sacrificial temporary citizens of the kingdoms of this world who know that at the end of the day we will always belong to another one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that You reveal Yourself in this world. That You make Your kingdom known in big ways. But most especially, we pray that You'd make Your kingdom known in us and in this community and in Your church around the world. May we be people who do not easily align with the false choices of our culture. But may we be the distinctive people who know that this is not our final home, but that we belong to another kingdom, to your kingdom. May we see you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.